I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, August 18th. Here are election 2020 updates from today's show. Michelle Obama returned to the political stage on Monday, the final speaker of the opening night of the Democratic Convention, looking like the first lady that she was rather than the cultural celebrity that she's become. But as soon as she began to speak, it was clear that she had not come as a symbol of past political triumphs or history-making progress. She sounded like a wounded citizen. She sounded like a woman in pain. By the end of her speech, her voice was breathy and her eyes began to shine and it seemed as though she might cry, that she might weep for the future of her country if its citizens couldn't roust themselves from these unfathomable lows and claw their way up toward the light. Obama did not come to reassure a jittery country. She came with a warning. She came to speak her mind and to unleash a profound sorrow. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, she said, Trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. If we have any hope of ending this chaos, she continued, we have got to vote for Joe Biden like our lives depend on it. Those were her words. Four years ago in Philadelphia, before the last election, she talked about rising above a campaign full of mudslinging and misdirection. Back then, it was a matter of dignity and honor. Now, she says, it's a matter of survival. She didn't speak like a politician with bullet points and data. Indeed, she reminded viewers that she hates politics. In her tone and her gestures, she came across more like an especially eloquent neighbor, chatting over the back fence and expressing a sense of dismay at what has become of our country. The president, she said, is in over his head, and he cannot meet the moment. And then, to use President Trump's own words, she said, It is what it is. Mrs. Obama warned of chicanery with the voting system. She was wearing a by Sherry necklace that spelled out vote. She exhorted listeners to vote early, to request absentee ballots now and mail them back immediately. She told people to be prepared to put on their comfortable shoes and a mask to go vote in person if need be. Pack a brown bag dinner and a breakfast too, she said, in case they had to wait and wait and wait even longer all night. It was a slow, bumpy build last night to Obama's moment in the virtual convention. Regular folks and brand-name politicians popped in and out on full screens and in gallery view. It was like a national Zoom meeting. There were multicultural checkerboards of citizens singing the national anthem and Jim Clyburn standing in the twinkling evening light of Charleston in his home state of South Carolina to remind all who were listening that he had resurrected Biden's presidential campaign from its deathbed. The convention tugged on heartstrings with its videos, including one featuring the faces of beleaguered but undaunted Americans with a soundtrack of Bruce Springsteen's raspy-voiced The Rising. Kristen Urquiza, whose father died of COVID-19, voiced her anger at Trump's handling of the pandemic. Her father had believed the president when he downplayed the threat of the coronavirus. He ceased taking precautions, fell ill, and died. Kristen's voice was steeped in anger. But Robin Gavon writes that anger was not the dominant emotion on Monday night. The speakers were not firebombing the audience with rage. Their tone was more of exhaustion and exasperation. 
from the Republicans who were supporting Biden to the former Trump voters who'd changed their allegiance, it was as though the anger had burned off over the course of three and a half long years, and all that was left was steely determination. Or perhaps it was just too difficult, too strange to stand in front of a camera yelling into the void instead of a convention hall packed with cheering citizens. Even Bernie Sanders' tone was more urgent than angry. People weren't mad. They've been mad for years. They're beyond mad. The voices were quieter. Some were even smiling. They were all at their wits end. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the Democratic Party last night fully embraced the imagery and themes of the Black Lives Matter movement, highlighting family members of black men who have been killed by police and showing footage of marches through American cities. At one point, the program was paused so viewers could observe a moment of silence for George Floyd, whose killing at the hands of Minneapolis police on Memorial Day ignited the current racial reckoning. Phil and East Floyd, one of George's brothers, echoed one of the slogans of the summer. When this moment ends, he said, let's make sure we never stop saying their names. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, speaking from a downtown balcony overlooking a blocks-long Black Lives Matter message painted on a city street in front of the White House, recalled those dramatic days in early June when Trump used forceful tactics against peaceful protesters outside the White House for a photo op with the Bible. If he did this to D.C., Bowser said, he would do it to your city. But identifying too closely with the current movement carries political risk, particularly if the protests continue to take a more violent turn, as they have in Portland and Richmond and other cities, including Minneapolis. Days of heightened unrest in places like Seattle and Portland have threatened to turn off some of the more moderate voters who dislike Trump and are considering casting a vote for Biden. Now, Biden gets this. And he's walked a careful path regarding the protests, showing empathy with the peaceful demonstrators while resisting the more far-reaching rhetoric from activists, including a rejection of calls to defund the police. Indeed, Biden's criminal justice plan would increase resources for police departments. Even as he was leading a conversation with a panel last night that included Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, a black man who was killed after a New York City police officer put him in a chokehold, Biden was careful to distinguish between what he characterized as a small percentage of bad actors on the force and the larger population of law enforcement that he supports. Most cops are good, Biden emphasized, but the fact is the bad ones must be identified and prosecuted. Throughout the night, speakers referred back to the protests. It was not just African-American speakers. Doug Jones, the Alabama senator who's facing a tough re-election in a very conservative state, stood in front of a civil rights memorial as he spoke about his state's long civil rights struggle. Organizers of previous Democratic conventions that unfolded in tumultuous times have struggled to balance the desire to have social change with a push to reassure voters who often crave stability. In 1948, then Minneapolis Mayor Hubert Humphrey electrified convention delegates by urging the party to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. When the convention responded by adopting a civil rights plank, many Southern delegates walked out and formed another party, the Dixiecrats. In 1968, when Democrats convened in Chicago, competing slates from several southern states vied to be seated, and they clashed over civil rights. In contrast, the 2020 convention aligned itself entirely behind the Black Lives Matter movement without any dissent. Number two, 
Bernie Sanders's address at the convention last night effectively closed an improbable odyssey, two bids for the White House that together formed the backbone of a new insurgent liberal movement. Sanders nodded to his success in lifting his previously fringe calls for Medicare for All, free college tuition, and a chastening of the nation's financial elites to the fore of the Democratic Party that had been drifting over time toward more centrist views. Speaking in front of a woodpile in Burlington, Vermont, he bragged that ideas that were considered radical five years ago are now seen as mainstream. Sanders cast Trump as a historic failure, a threat to our democracy who is leading us down the path of authoritarianism. He added, quote, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Trump golfs. Any bitterness about his defeat in the primary was absent. This phase of his revolution was televised and unified, with Sanders urging supporters to back Biden. It was also a subtle handoff for the 78-year-old. Several rising Democratic stars, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who gets 60 seconds to speak tonight, see themselves as his political heirs and would surely pressure a President Biden from the left. Sanders-style left-wing populism is gaining power, not just here, but throughout Europe, at times replacing an older guard of liberals who had embraced globalization. Across Western democracies, campaigns rooted in passionate emotion and grievance have won mass followings. One of the necessary casualties of holding a virtual convention, as with campaigning virtually, is spontaneity. Conventions were already glorified coronations and scripted partisan rallies, and that's even more the case right now. But that also made some of the chosen messages more interesting because you know that they were carefully crafted by the Biden campaign. And one of them was reinforced a couple times Monday night. And it is this, that Biden will not go too hard to the left. Sanders, for example, even noted that he disagrees with Biden on health care, but that his approach is better than Trump's. Former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who ran for president as a Republican in 2016, endorsed Biden, and he said he knows there are a lot of Republicans and independents who couldn't imagine crossing over to support a Democrat because they fear Biden may turn sharp left and leave them behind. But then Kasich said he could assure them that that will not be the case and suggested that Biden will govern as a moderate. Number three, on the chaotic day last week that Biden called Kamala Harris to tell her that he wanted her to be his running mate. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's cell phone rang. As one of the four co-chairs on Biden's vice presidential selection committee, Garcetti was one of a handful of people on the planet privy to the extensive and secretive process. On the other end of the line was someone even more involved in the decision. Joe's wife of 43 years, Jill. So central was Jill Biden's role in the process that the selection committee had presented their initial findings to the Bidens as a pair. With Jill's input, Joe narrowed the field of more than 20 to the 11 finalists who he then interviewed one-on-one. -on -one. Joe called the other contenders to tell them Harris was his pick, and Jill was the one calling the four selection committee co-chairs to tell them. The extent of Jill Biden's influence on big decisions in her husband's campaign to unseat Trump is both mysterious and not. It's a marriage, is Jill's standard line, which is to say, of course they've talked about this. They bounce things off each other all the time, and we don't get to know the details. But here's something we do know. The Jill Biden who will address the convention in prime time tonight is playing a far more active role in her husband's campaign than she did in his previous two White House bids in 1988 and 2008. Though she spent eight years in and near the White House, her speech at the virtual convention will serve as a reintroduction to voters, a big moment for a potential first lady, even in these circumstances. And what kind of first lady would she be? By all indications, a hands-on one. 
Family dynamics have changed since the last time Joe ran for office, particularly after Bo Biden's 2015 death of brain cancer at 46. Bo's absence as his father's confidant has left a vacuum that Jill has filled, several friends and confidants told my colleague Annie Linsky. Jill was not a professional model like Melania Trump, but she did pose for local advertisements shot by a photographer friend. One of those caught the eye of then 32-year-old first-term Senator Joe Biden as he walked through the Wilmington Airport in 1975. As it turned out, Joe's brother Frank knew Jill and gave him her number. The rest is history, which the Bidens have written themselves in their many books. Jill was nine years younger, a tough cookie Philly girl, the oldest of five girls who had once punched a bully in the face for throwing worms on one of her sisters. He was a widower who had lost his wife in a 1972 car crash that also killed his baby daughter and badly injured his young sons. Jill and Joe's romance was a whirlwind, but it took five marriage proposals before she said yes. She'd been married and divorced young to, as she put it in one of her books, a tall ex-football player who drove a fast yellow Camaro. She wanted to make sure, for the sake of Bo and Hunter, that this wouldn't end in another divorce. She'd raise the boys and they would call her mom. Now, Senate payroll records, reviewed by the Post, also reveal that Jill worked as a staff assistant in Joe Biden's office for four and a half months from September 1975 until the end of January 1976. That was before they married in 1977, and she used her prior name, Jill Stevenson. Now, this episode is not mentioned in her book, and it seems to have been entirely lost from their biographical narrative. A Biden campaign aide tried to downplay her role, saying Jill was just answering the phone in a front office when Joe was short-staffed. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. If you want to hear full episodes, find The Daily 202 every weekday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.